0: tell you right up front, Will sent me that clip earlier this week, because I said, man, I'm preaching from Psalm 3 on Sunday, and I need, that, I need that choir anthem in the service. And so he sent me, he said, tell me what you think about this. Well, all I did was cry through the whole thing. I cried like five times listening to it. One, Now, I will admit, one of the reasons I cried was because this little violin, or the violin player that was over here in that clip uh, we just took her to college. y'all. got all that last week, so I got that cry out of me. And then, you know, it was, oh, I hadn't heard that choir in a while, and I'm going to cry again if I'm not careful. And so I cried about that for a little bit. And I'm going to tell you, I am very, 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 very grateful for all of the technological abilities that we've got that allow us um, to... To transmit these services into your homes like we are this morning but I, I'm unapologetically I miss I miss what we had and um, watching that this week made me miss it even more with all of these chairs filled up and all of the singing that comes out you are such a wonderfully singing church and uh, well, I just missed it so I cried about that and, um, but then that anthem, oh, it's what, unapologetically, I will tell you, it is one of my top two or three favorites that the choir sings. I get emotional every single time. It's those words, but thou, oh Lord, are a shield for me in the middle of the trouble that I go through and the difficulties that I face. And you are my shield and you are the glory of my life and the defender. I can't, I've got to get through this sermon. Y'all just pray with me. You at home, go ahead and pray. This is only my first one. I got another one to do. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to that wonderful beautiful awesome psalm that we just heard sung for us by that choir psalm three if you've got your bibles i want you to turn with me there we are going to continue in our series that began a few weeks ago that i've entitled songs from the heart and today we're going to consider the way in which the lord helps those who find themselves in trouble that's what this psalm is all about how does the lord help those who find themselves in trouble now, I know all of us in this room have experienced trouble in some way, shape, or form in our lives. Some of you are in trouble right now. Some of us, we, we know what it's like to have health-related trouble, to have family-related trouble, work-related trouble. For some of us, we've been in trouble physically. Safety, our safety's been called into question. But as we look here at Psalm 3, what I want you to zero in on with me to begin with is I want you to notice the severity of the nature of the trouble that serves as the background of this psalm. Because if we get it in our minds, it helps us really be able to understand this psalm even better. In most of your Bibles, you will see a superscription that introduces this psalm that reads this. It is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, this title introduces to us really the historical setting. It's the the circumstances under which this psalm was composed. And... Since it's composed by David, we know that everything that he talks about here ultimately affects the kingdom of Israel. We know that. We know that since it tells us that he was fleeing, that he fled, that we recognize that his life was in jeopardy, that his safety was being called into question. But then when we read that he was fleeing from his son, Absalom, well, then we begin to understand that that brings his trouble to a whole different level because the trouble he faces comes from within his own family. In other words, the trouble that David faces here that we read about in Psalm 3 is truly terrible. It's severe. It's heart-crushing. In fact, we can cross-reference what we we read about here in Psalm 3 with, with what was written about David uh, from the historical point of view, in the book of 2 Samuel. From, from 2 Samuel 15 to 18, you can find the background to, to Psalm 3. And I would strongly encourage you to go home and take time to read that. Uh, those chapters recount how David's son Absalom attempted to overthrow him from the throne in Israel. Now, with that, though, as a, as a historical setting to tell us about Psalm 3, we, we still probably want to ask though, but why does Psalm 3 fall here? Because the last two weeks we looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and we talked about how those were introductory psalms that introduced us really to a lot of the themes, most all of the themes that we'll see as we look at these psalms are come in, verses, in chapters 1 and 2. So why does Psalm 3 fall here? Well, I think it's also important to note that David was God's anointed king. We read about that all the way back in 1 Samuel 15 when the prophet Samuel came and anointed David in front of all of his brothers with the oil that represented God's divine presence and his favor with him. And all of that occurred there. And so for that reason, I think it's important, as James Johnson has pointed out, that it's no accident that Psalm 3 comes immediately after Psalm 2, which as you'll recall last week, we looked, predicted that the rulers and the nations would rise against God's anointed. And so Psalm 3 begins to chronicle for us what God's anointed actually experiences in this world, what life is like for God's King, what it means to be betrayed by those that were closest to Him. And so what I want us to do is I want us to examine this Psalm today, and I believe that as we do, just like that choir's anthem that we just we're able to listen to. I believe you'll recognize that Psalm 3 is truly a beautiful, beautiful psalm. In fact, one of the things that I would suggest is, is, is kind of like a diamond that a jeweler takes out to show you the beauty of it. A jeweler typically lays it on a, a black piece of cloth so that you can truly know just how beautiful that diamond is. Well, the diamond that is Psalm 3 is laid back against the dark, dark history. Of David being chased from the throne by his own son. Let's read this together. And as we do, this is the question that I want you to keep in your mind this morning. What can I understand about how the Lord helps me in my times of trouble based upon what I read about how the Lord helped David in his? Well, that is an, in, as a background and as an introduction. Read with me The words of Psalm 3 this morning. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice. And he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty of of music. We thank you for the beauty of music that is set to deliver us the words of your text as we've been able to do this morning. We've been able to sing about your majesty and and about the blessings that you bring to us and about the fact that, that our hope, lies only in Jesus. And my prayer this morning is that you would direct our hearts specifically and directly to Him. So, Father, I pray that you help me to be able to form my words in such a way that all of us that are surrounding this text this morning that you authored, that was given to us by your Holy Spirit, that is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, that you would help us as we study it to see Jesus Christ as the answer to everything that we have going on in our lives that he's the ultimate answer to everything that we face. I pray that you would help me to do the job that you've called me to do this morning in that endeavor, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I read the psalm, you probably um, noticed those three occurrences of that word selah, which we find in the psalms 71 times, actually. It occurs in, in, in throughout the psalms. Scholars do not agree on what that word means or even what it's supposed to do. Um, it, it, it certainly comes at a time of breaking. We know that the Psalms were written, ideally, just as this one was, and, and many others, for it to be sung. They were composed as, as the lyrics that would eventually be put to music and then be sung. And so the word salah, many believe, is, is, is placed there to, to sort of serve as a break for the singers to take a, a break in their singing, maybe to allow the instrumentalists to tune their instruments uh, some even think about it's just a time for reflection upon the words that they've just sung. Here in, in Psalm 3, I think that fits appropriately with the text. The psalms come at specific breakpoints that, that call for reflection, and I want us to observe them in that way. And, and I've also even added another point of reflection of my own between verses 6 and 7 uh, for us to kind of stop and think about what the, the psalmist is saying there. And and so that's why I have listed four points in the movement of this psalm, and I've listed them for you on your outline this morning. And, and the first one that I want us to think about today is, is simply this. Notice the first point there. We are presented in verses 1 and 2 with an overwhelming crisis. We are presented with an overwhelming crisis. David begins by calling out to the Lord and saying to him how, how they have increased who trouble me. Literally, he, he says, there are many who trouble me. And then he continues, there are many who rise up against me. And then he says this, there are many who say of me, there is no help for him in God. You notice the the repetition that that takes place. There's the many, the many, the many. David's cry to the Lord certainly presents an overwhelming crisis. But the nature of the crisis and the opposition David faces is significant. As we mentioned in the introduction, when we go back and look at history, David was not one who was unfamiliar with being chased. He was not one who was unfamiliar with being in, in military combat. He was not one who was unfamiliar with what it was like to go to war. In fact, if you comb through the books of First and Second Samuel, you'll recognize that this was not David's first rodeo in being chased. However the many, many, many from whom David cries out to the Lord for help for, from here in, in Psalm 3, well, these were not Philistines. These were not Ammonites. These were not Edomites, no. The attack that was David faced here according to Psalm 3 comes from his own son who had declared David to be his enemy. And to make matters worse, many of David's own Friends and his advisors, peoples that he loved and trusted in to be his confidants, they had turned against him and sided with Absalom. And based upon what we read here, there were many, many, many of them who surrounded him and hemmed him in and enclosed him in from all sides. Listen, as someone who is both both claustrophobic, I, I fear enclosed spaces, but I am also have been diagnosed by somebody who said you're agoraphobic too, which means I need an exit. I need to find a way to get out of a situation if I'm in. I want you to know as someone who's claustrophobic and agoraphobic, what David writes here freaks me out just a little bit because he is writing about being hemmed in from all sides. There are people rising up. He's got nowhere to turn. He's got nowhere to go. Every place he looks, his opposition is enclosing him and wrapping around him. As Gerald Wilson puts it, sort of like a boa constrictor wrapping around its prey. That's the way David feels. But this is what I want you to notice. It was not just the physical danger that David cries out to the Lord for help for. It was also the things that his enemies were saying about him. It was the words that they used in, in regard, with regard to David and, and him being abandoned by God. Notice he says, there are many who say of me, there is no help for him in God. You know, if you go back and you read 2 Samuel, you'll find that after David had escaped from Jerusalem and, and he had crossed the Kidron Valley and he had... Climbed the Mount of Olives barefoot, by the way, and as he's going up that mountain, and he's crying, and he's he he's had dust all over his head, and he's he's heading out to escape to the wilderness to the east. He is accosted by a man named Shimei. Shimei was a Benjamite. He was a relative of of King Saul, Israel's former king, who was now dead. Shimei resented David, who was one of the tribe of Judah, and and he began cursing David. He began throwing stones at him and and at all the people who were with David. And and he was undaunted and he was undeterred in his expression of disdain and and really hatred for Israel's king. In fact, just listen to to what he, he yells at David as recorded in 2 Samuel 16 Verses 7 and 8, he yells at David, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. So the context of Psalm 3 tells us that David's being chased by his own son. And he's being cursed by his fellow Jews. But according to this psalm, even evidently Shimei was not the only one who was saying such awful things about David. From David's vantage point, the uprising against him had grown and multiplied as his family and his close confidants and his friends and his Jews by the score had turned their backs on him and now they were closing in for him on the kill. But it's, I believe, the accusation there in verse 2 that, Hurt David is probably as much as anything. Lord, they're saying that there's no help for me in you. They're saying I have no salvation in you. That that word help there, salvation is depending on what translation that you see. It could be deliverance or help or salvation. In the Hebrew, that word is the word Yeshua. It's the word from which the name Joshua comes And it is that same word that we get that Jesus is named Jesus in the New Testament. It comes from that same word, Yeshua. And it literally means God will save. And they were saying, there's no no salvation for you, David. Now I want you to just think about that. Many were saying God would not deliver him. Listen, I cannot imagine anything more overwhelming than that thought. To have it said of you that you have gone too far for God to be able to save you. That you've gone too far away from Him. That you've done too much. That God no longer has the ability to save you. Some of you may have thought that about yourselves before. Some of you may be toying with that thought right now. If that's the case, hang with me. Hang with David as we work our way through this song. Because what David has presented for us, first of all, is an overwhelming crisis. Many, many, many have turned against him. He's being tracked down and encompassed all around. And it's being said of him that God has disowned him and that he has no hope for salvation. But I want you to know after reflecting on that thought, notice that the psalm turns. And in it, David changes his gaze from the oppression of the many, many, many in verses 1 and 2. And he turns his eyes and he fixes his gaze on the Lord in verses three and four. And when he does, we come to the second point that I want you to see, and it's a reassuring confidence. Here we are presented with a reassuring confidence. I love what James Boyce has written. He says, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seem to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature And the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. I believe that's exactly what happens beginning in verse 3, in which we read those beautiful words that carried the choir's anthem along with us. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Very quickly, I just want to point out four things of which David is confident. This reassuring confidence here, four things that he's confident of. The first thing he's confident of is the Lord's protection. He's confident of the Lord's protection. He says, you are a shield for or really better about me. You see, David declares that even though he was being surrounded by all of his foes and all of the opposition was enclosing around him, he declared, God, you're the one who's my shield. That You're the one who deflects all of the arrows that are being shot at me. All the blows that are aimed at me. You are the shield that blocks all of that. Secondly, David is confident of his relationship with the Lord. He says, you are my glory. As Johnson puts it, David's honor and dignity came from being the one that God had anointed as king. So no matter what happened to him, David was sure of the fact that God had placed his hand upon him. The third thing that David was confident of was that the Lord would lift up his head. In other words, David is confident of the Lord's vindication of him. In the ancient world, when a king or a warrior would go in with his army and defeat another king, it was customary often for when the defeat had taken place, that the, that the victorious king would put his foot on the neck of the king that had been defeated as a way not only of showing that he had won, but a way of humiliating that king. David was confident, however, that the Lord would not let that happen to him, that he would not have Absalom's foot on his own neck, but rather that the Lord would lift his head and it would give him honor. Then the last thing that in verse 4 that David is assured of is of his confidence that the Lord would answer his prayer. You see, and the reason he could be assured of that was because David reminded himself of the many times that he had cried out to the Lord and the Lord had heard him and answered him. Spurgeon once wrote this. He says, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Listen, if you've got a prayer-hearing God who's answered your prayers in the past, you need to remind yourself of that so that you don't go around frowning in this world when all of the things rise up against you. You've got a God that hears you. You've got a God that you can pray to. That was David's confidence. So as we pause here to reflect on these verses, what we recognize is that an overwhelming crisis was met with a reassuring confidence which leads us to consider the next set of verses that we find. Notice the third point on your outline. Here we come face to face with a relaxing calmness. Now, the reason I put that there and and, and worded it that way is notice David says in verse 5, I lay down and slept. Now, do those words just kind of hit you right in the mouth? They did me a little bit. I mean, How in the world, David, did you lay lay down and sleep in light of everything you just described in verses one and two? How, How could you just, you know, your son's hunting you down. You got you got people that are saying all kinds of evil and wicked things against you, saying that God's turned his back on you. How is it that you can lay down and sleep? Well, you know, when your mind is overwhelmed with all the problems that you face we, we deal with anxiety, and, and many people struggle at that particular point uh, with being able to sleep. When you consider you know, all the insurmountable odds, maybe it's the diagnosis of the doctor that's called. Maybe it's the changes that are coming, the conflict that's on its way. Sometimes it's hard to sleep when, you, when your mind gets to chasing all of those different things down. Sometimes even though we're able to go to sleep, we wake up and we can't go back to sleep because those fears and those anxieties, I want to ask for a show of hands, but I think most of us can identify in some way with that. That's what makes these words of verse 5 so noteworthy. And it forces us to ask, how was David able to sleep in the midst of all that he was facing? Well, based upon what we just read, Based upon his confidence in who the Lord is and and in the relationship that he had with him, David could rest. He could rest knowing that, as the next line states there, that that it was the Lord who was sustaining him. In other words, you could put it this way David could sleep because his all sustaining God never sleeps and never slumbers. So he he could put all of the troubles that he was facing into God's mighty hand and then he could lay down. And close his eyes knowing that God never sleeps and God can handle it. Now I think it is worth mentioning here that, that David's sleep does not mean that, that he just folded his hands and didn't do anything. That, that's not what this means. In fact, the text of 2 Samuel 17 indicates that David didn't sleep the night that Absalom chased after him. Instead, he left under the cover of darkness and he crossed the Jordan River. Absalom's pursuit of David called for decisive action and David responded accordingly. And you and I would be wise to consider that fact as well. Nevertheless, in the course of Absalom's rebellion against his father, David was nevertheless able to sleep. And he could relax because of his confidence in the Lord. But also notice that the calmness that David displays there in verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, from a literary point of view, you realize that the 10,000s there in verse 6 are related back to the many, many, many of verses 1 and 2. And so in verses 1 and 2, David is expressing his, his fear, his anxiety over being chased and hemmed in. But now here, as we get to verse 6, we realize that he's abandoned his fear and now he presents calmness. He's no longer overwhelmed by the odds that are against him because he is confident in the God who always has and always will sustain him. And I would say even though there's no selah there at the end of verse 6, I think it's appropriate to just pause and reflect on the fact that an overwhelming crisis was met by a reassuring confidence that led to a relaxing calmness. And that leads us to the last point that I want you to know. The fourth point simply is this. It leads to a trusting conviction. There's a trusting conviction that we read about in the last two verses. In verse 7, David calls for the Lord to arise and to save him. Many have noted the similarity between what David exclaims here in verse 7 with what Moses prayed in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. There he he prayed, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Now Moses prayed that prayer as that God would kind of move all of the enemies of Israel Away from him. And, and as the, the, the Israel broke camp, the Ark of the Covenant went out in front of them. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his nation. The nation of Israel. Well here, David is also calling for the Lord to rise up and do the same. Because David knew that God, he was God's anointed. And that the Lord's presence rested with him. And even though many had risen to strike him down, David prays that the Lord would do the opposite. That he would strike his enemies down. And even though the skeptics had already concluded that God would not save David, David prays out, nevertheless, save me, oh my God, asking the Lord to deliver him and to prove his adversaries wrong. And furthermore, even though Absalom would no doubt have humiliated his father had he captured him, here David recognizes that in his defense, God would humiliate all who rose up against him they would be struck on the jaw and their teeth would be broken. And really the metaphor that, that David is praying for there is that, look, there, there may be a lion that's out on the prowl, but if his teeth have been knocked out, you've got no reason to fear him. And God will be the one who will take care of doing that. So when David prays this, understand he's praying for, for deliverance and, and his trust is in the Lord to protect him and to save him, which is exactly what he says there in verse 8. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. David's conviction was that the Lord would be the one to bring deliverance. He would be the one whom others had said would have, had abandoned David. Nevertheless, he would be the one who would actually deliver David from the trouble that he was in. And David was very confident of that. And don't miss this too. The very last line is that David recognizes that even though the victory belongs to the Lord... He is praying for the people. He is praying for those under his rule, many of whom had turned against him. And nevertheless, he wants what is best for them. And so he asks for God's blessing to return to the people that peace might reign throughout the land, even though there were those who had opposed him and rejected him among that many. So with the final say and call to reflect, we do so recognizing that in this psalm, we have observed an overwhelming crisis that was met with a reassuring confidence that led to a relaxing calmness and then the possession of a trusting conviction. And it is the reflection upon that truth that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. When trouble comes into your life and it seems as though your life is going to come apart, you can experience peace by turning your gaze to the Lord reminding yourself of who he is and all that he has done and placing your trust in him. I mean, if you, take, if you take Psalm 3 and just work your way down it, you end up coming to understand Well, when trouble comes. And I feel like everything's coming apart. I need to turn my view to the Lord. I need to remind myself of all he's done in the past, who he is, and I can have peace. I can have peace when I place my trust in him. Now, that's what we've witnessed David do. And I want you to know, 2 Samuel goes on to reveal that the Lord did deliver David from the hands of his enemy. You should go back and read about how Absalom was entangled in his pursuit of David. He was ultimately killed. And how the kingdom was restored to David. It's truly an amazing story of God's deliverance. Here's the question that I we do with this passage. How does it apply to us? You remember at the very beginning, I I, I told you, I encouraged you, what can I understand about how the Lord helps me in my times of trouble based upon what I read about how the Lord helped David? And I certainly believe that this this psalm certainly calls for us to take our eyes off of our troubling circumstances and to fix our gaze upon the Lord who has delivered us from trouble in the past. And who calls on us to trust him to deliver us both now and in the future. And in that regard, we are called to exhibit faith just as David did. Here's the thing. Honesty compels us to acknowledge that we don't always feel as though our prayers of deliverance are answered as David's were. David was physically rescued from the threat of danger and certain death at the hands of his son Absalom. God literally saved David's life. But the reality is that is not always the way that God works when we call out to him in the midst of our troubling crisis. Listen, I have joined with many of you who are in this room as we lifted our voices collectively together, prayed for God's help, prayed for his rescue, prayed for God to to remove the disease that was claiming a person's life, and Together, we stood by that gravesite as we buried that individual. I have been there when parents have prayed earnestly with tears, weeping for their wayward child to come back home and to be reunited with the family and for there to be reconciliation. I have been there when one spouse prayed for another spouse to come to faith in Christ, and for there to be reconciliation in that marriage, and then I have watched that marriage continue to dissolve even to the point of divorce. I've heard the cries of those who have been mistreated and who have had false accusations hurled against them and have suffered injustice even though they pled to God For intervention. So what do we say to those situations? How do we understand the message of Psalm 3 in light of those circumstances? Do we conclude as the many of Psalm 2 verse Psalm 3 verse 2 did that there are those for whom there is no help for them in God? Surely not. Surely not. So then how do we reconcile these things? How are we supposed to understand David's rescue from the hands of Absalom in light of the fact that God does not always deliver us from the troubles that we face? Well, I would simply make the case that what we see occur here in David's life ultimately points us to the greater king, to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. You see, what David experienced at the hands of his son Absalom And others who turned on him really foreshadowed what would happen to the Lord Jesus when he came. The opening passage of John's gospel reminds us that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Like David, Jesus knew what it meant to be rejected by his own people. He knew what it was like to be ridiculed and shunned. And if that weren't bad enough, Jesus was pursued and he was dogged by the religious leaders who desired to put him to death. And the scriptures revealed that when they were finally successful in that endeavor, that just as David's foes taunted him by saying that there was no help for him in God, Jesus himself, when he hung on the cross, had those who mocked him. According to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel then let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. In effect the leaders were saying of Jesus there is no help for him in God. And here is and I want you to know there is a sense. There is a sense in which that is true. Because on the night before that Jesus was crucified, he prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But the cup did not pass from him. In fact, Jesus drained every last drop of the cup of God, the Father's divine wrath against sin. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's right here. Brothers and sisters that I want you to know, we come face to face with the gospel. And it's the reason why you and I can have hope regardless of the trouble that comes into our lives. Because you see, as Tim Keller has written, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. His death means no death for us. His resurrection means our resurrection and as Romans 6 verse 5 puts it for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death certainly we also shall be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection and here's why all of that is so incredibly important you see the fact is that in this life God may not always save you from shame and death the way that he saved David But the gospel promises that he will save you ultimately and eternally through the shame and the death that Jesus Christ suffered in your place. He may not always save you from your troubles. but He will save you through your troubles because of Jesus. The Yeshua, the help, the deliverance, the salvation that David looked for In God has come once and for all in our Yeshua, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have the promise that all who look to him in faith will be saved. Brothers and sisters, therein lies the essence of the same hope and the same confidence that David had. It is a hope that gave him peace of mind in the midst of trouble, a hope that allowed him to say unequivocally, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that same hope is available to us today through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is my, my prayer that each and every one of you will place your faith firmly in Him because trouble is going to come. And there are going to be times when you feel like your life is absolutely coming apart. But you can experience peace by turning your gaze to the Lord and reminding yourself of who He is and all that He has done And placing your trust in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your your love and your mercy to us. And we thank you for the fact that we know, based upon what we study in this word, that you are unchanging. You are always the same. We can always depend on you. There is no shadow of turning with you. And because that is the case, we know that no matter what we go through in our lives and our circumstances and the situations that we go through, which constantly change, we have a sure hope for whom we can rest. And just as David was confident of the salvation that he had in you, we too can be confident of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, we know that there are times when when our faith takes a huge hit, when our body is, is... is racked with pain, when our emotions are thrown into a a complete state of disarray, when our finances seem to just completely throw everything out the window. Lord, there are times when we just come to the end of ourselves, and at those moments, we need to be reminded that you are our strength and you are our help and you are our hope. Father, my prayer is, is that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring peace to the hearts that may be troubled here this morning. That they who have placed their faith and confidence in you would be reminded of, of that salvation that you bring and that deliverance and that help that you are. That they can trust in you regardless of their circumstances because they know that you have ultimately saved them. But Lord, if there's someone who's listening to my voice this morning and there's someone maybe who is in this room today who has never placed their faith and trust in you, then I don't... I don't ask that you bring them that peace. I pray, God, that you might bring them to you through the, through the, the turmoil and the, the struggle that they're going through right now, that they would come to hear that you are their only hope. And that, Father, that they would turn to you in faith and in confidence and trust and that they would place their faith in you, maybe for the very, very first time. So my prayer is that you would draw those who are lost to you for saving faith and that you would Remind those of us who are saved of of our confidence in you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.